Our message this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please join me once again in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we are about to explore this so important topic, as we seek to understand the institution of the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that was given to your church by your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would enable us to to understand your word rightly. We pray that you would cause us to put all other thoughts aside from our minds that we might Holy, be focused upon you and upon your word this morning. And we pray that through it all, Lord God, we would not simply acquire more theological information, but through a deeper understanding of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that you would enable us to see a greater glimpse of your glory and of your beauty and of your magnificence. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, uh, when we talked about the, uh, and practiced, we talked about and practiced, the ordinance of baptism, I said that there were two signs and seals given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I just want to remind you of those words that when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper as being a sign, we mean that it is something that is a visible reminder of our covenant relationship with God. That's what we mean. It is a visible reminder of our covenant relationship with God. And when we talk about the Lord's Supper as being a seal, is the sign and seal of the new covenant, um, we mean that it is, it's not something that seals you into 
Christ. Rather, we mean that it is something which acts as a visible mark of authenticity. The Lord's Supper acts as a visible mark of authenticity, as does baptism. And every covenant that God makes in the Bible, as we have gone through this series, every covenant that God makes in the Bible is always accompanied with a sign and seal of that covenant. Every covenant, first of all, is accompanied with a verbal promise, right? God makes a promise, and then in those covenants, God then offers a sign and a seal of the covenant as a reminder to the people of his promise. Ultimately, these signs and seals aren't so that God will remember his promise. They are there so that we will remember the promises of God and that we will remember that God remembers his promises and will never forget. This is true of all of the covenants, even going back to uh, the covenant of works with Adam and Eve in the garden prior to the fall. There is a sign and a seal of that covenant. It is the tree of life. The tree of life was designed as a visible reminder to them that they were in a covenant relationship with God. And so long as they were in that covenant relationship with God, they could freely eat of the tree of life. They were not forbidden from it. They were only forbidden from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they reached out and partook from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were forbidden from reaching out to the tree of life because the covenant has been broken. They were no longer in a covenant relationship with God. This is true of all of the covenants. The covenant with Noah, sign and seal of that covenant being the rainbow. The covenant with Abraham, the sign and seal of that covenant being circumcision. The covenant of law with Israel. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments written upon tablets of stone that were set inside the Ark of the Covenant and then covered with the mercy seat was a visible reminder to the people of Israel that they were in a covenant relationship with God. covenant with David, the sign and seal of that covenant that God said to David that you would always have a descendant to reign upon your throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. Christ, the son of David, continues to reign upon his throne and of his kingdom there will never be an end. The new covenant is unique in that there are two signs and seals given to the people of God in the new covenant. Baptism, which is the rite of initiation into the new covenant community, and the Lord's Supper, which we are talking about this morning, which is the rite of remembrance for the new covenant community. Thus, as we talk about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper... With that as our intro, Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. For I received from the Lord, he begins with. Clearly, Paul wants his readers to understand, he wants us to understand that this sacrament 
has been given to the church by Christ himself. This is not something that we made up. This is not some tradition that the church has come up with. This came directly from Christ himself. Of course, Paul says, I received from the Lord. We have to wonder when and how. To our knowledge, Jesus did not directly communicate this to Paul. Maybe he did in a vision, or maybe while he was out in the desert after his Damascus Road experience. It's more likely that Paul received this from the apostles themselves when he spent time with them in Jerusalem. It may be that he received this from Luke, as if you compare the language that Paul uses here and that Luke uses when he talks about the Lord's Supper being instituted by Christ, it's almost identical. It's nearly word for word. Paul seems to be quoting from Luke, um, much more so than Mark or Matthew. Either way, we know that to receive instruction from the apostles or from the authoritative writing of Luke is to receive it from Christ himself because the apostles spoke the very words of God and all scripture is God breathed. But Paul wants us to understand and be clear where this is coming from. He wants us to understand the weightiness of it, that this comes from Christ. He then says, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. Again, Paul reminds them that Christ inaugurated the Lord's Supper when the saints were gathered together for corporate worship. All of the disciples were gathered in one place for worship. The Passover meal was not just a, 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 a fun meal like Thanksgiving that we do every year. It was an act of worship. It was a sacred rite that they would participate in every year. This is the language that is consistently used and the pattern that we consistently see throughout the New Testament, that the Lord's Supper is taken when God's people gather together for corporate worship. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. When you come together, as he is approaching his teaching on the Lord's Supper. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Paul simply assumes that when they are going to take the Lord's Supper, they will be coming together to do that. He assumes that this is what's going to happen when they gather together for corporate worship. We also see this pattern consistently being followed in the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 get saved. And then we are told, and they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and Prayers. Breaking of bread was their way of referring to the Lord's Supper. They collectively devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Also in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. We know that the New Testament church was comprised of house, churches, the idea of having a 
standalone building where the saints would gather for corporate worship doesn't really come about until the second or third century. But nonetheless, they gathered together in various homes for the breaking of bread. They did this in part because of the symbolism of what the Lord's Supper represented. The symbolism of one body, all partaking of one bread, is best seen in the corporate gathering of the saints. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, flip back just one chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, as Paul, in his thinking, as he is approaching the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, you know, Paul thought ahead. He doesn't write his letters just by willy-nilly. Let's just see what comes out. He had a plan. May have even worked from an outline that he had started. And he lays the groundwork for the Lord's Supper in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the cup of blessing that we bless, the bread that we Break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ, the one body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Thus, in the Lord's Supper, there is this imagery. There is this image of taking the one bread, because that's how they did it. We sort of lose this in our modern time because we're all germaphobes to one extent or another. We all have these individual crackers or wafers or whatever the case may be, but in the New Testament church, they would take one, one piece of unleavened bread, and they would each break a piece off, and they would pass it around, understanding that this represented the one body of Christ that we all partake of. We all feed off of the one body of Christ, and they understood that that symbolism, that sacred rite could not be done separated. They needed to come together and all partake of the one bread. So in their minds, and it should be in the minds of believers today, the idea of doing church at home or church online, if there were such a thing, there is not. There's no such thing as church at home or church online. But the idea of doing that, they thought, they would have thought doesn't make any sense. Because you pass the bread around, you pass the one piece of bread around, and we all partake of it. If you're sitting home by yourself, who are you passing the bread to? You could try passing it back and forth to yourself. But if you do that, you've got deeper issues. And there's medicine for that. Thus, in following the pattern of the New Testament church, the Lord's Supper should be taken when the saints are gathered for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Now, this is not to say that there are not occasional exceptions where the Lord's Supper can be taken uh, in some other type of setting, because there is no explicit command that it must be taken together. We are simply following the pattern that would appear to be the clear instructions of the apostles, particularly of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. But I'll give you some examples here in a few weeks. We're going to be gathering together 
during our Monday, Thursday night, which I hope uh, all of you will participate in. And on a Thursday night, we will be taking the Lord's Supper together as we remember that holy Thursday night when Christ was betrayed and when he partook of that last meal with his disciples. So we'll be doing it on a Thursday night. It's also not to say that there aren't moments when the soldier on the battlefield desires to partake of the sacrament and is given it provided by his chaplain in times of war. Or there have been times when I have gone to shut-ins, people who are deathly sick and ill and are homebound and can't get out for months at a time. Christ gave the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace to the church. It's a way of strengthening and fortifying our faith. And those times when I've done that, uh, the recipient has seen it as a, a tremendous blessing in a way of being encouraged by what Christ has given to the church. Nonetheless, this is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. And do we really want to believe that we, 2,000 years removed from the life of Christ, are wiser and smarter and more intelligent than those who are only 30 years removed from the life and teaching of Christ? I don't think so. And I think we would be wise to follow the pattern of the New Testament church. The other thing that's important to note from verse 23 is the manner in which Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. He links it. He links the new covenant and the way that he does it back to the Old Testament. For example, he says, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Paul, in writing that, he wants to remind his readers of the night in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He could have just shared the words. He could have just said, you know, this is what Jesus said about the Lord's Supper. But he chooses his words carefully because Paul does not waste words. He wants to remind them that the Lord's Supper was instituted during the Passover meal. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during that sacred meal, that sacred holiday, which would have been significant. Because if you remember, the Passover was designed to remind the people of Israel of that day in which God delivered them out of slavery from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And then they were commanded every year on the first month of the year, the Jewish calendar year, you are to celebrate this Passover as a way of remembering. And they would be reminded of the fact that God commanded them to take a young lamb without spot or blemish to bring him into the home, to let him live with the family for a week, care for him, get attached to him, feed him, water him, and then sacrifice him. Why? Because there had to be some skin in the game. They had to know that this was a serious sacrifice that was being made on their behalf. This innocent lamb was going to die for you and for your deliverance. And then they were to roast the entire lamb and eat all of it, not leave any of it until the next day. They were to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. 
The bitter herbs were to remind them that this was a, a bittersweet event. It was sweet in that they were about to be delivered from Egyptian slavery, but it was bitter in that not only did an innocent animal have to die for their deliverance, but the firstborn of all the Egyptians must die that they might go free. At the same time, the Jews very likely did not understand why God chose to deliver them this way. They would have thought it's a little odd at first. Why does God need blood over our doorpost? Can, can the omniscient, all-knowing God not tell the difference between Jews and Gentiles without the blood? Of course he could. The idea was to communicate a very important lesson to them, one that they would shortly come to understand once God instituted the sacrificial system and the temple and the priesthood, and there was the regular ritual of sacrifices, particularly the high day of atonement, they came to understand, oh, there must be the death of someone for sin and for our deliverance. This would have made sense to them shortly after leaving Egypt. At the same time, the Lord's Supper to the disciples very likely was a bit confusing as well. What does he mean by this? This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is given. What, what does this mean? Now, they would have recognized the echoing of Jeremiah 31, the blood of the new covenant. Ah, that we recognize. But they would have been a bit puzzled at Jesus' words. Until, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, they finally have the aha moment at Pentecost. And in fact, they will have several aha moments throughout the first 30 years of the church. The point is that Christ intentionally uses a rite. He intentionally uses a rite that was tied to the Old Testament people of God their deliverance from Egypt and the covenant of law as a sign and seal of the new covenant. In doing this, Christ links the Old Testament with the New Testament, Israel and the church. The church is not something that is radically new and different from Old Testament Israel. It is different in some ways, but it is similar in other ways. The church is the natural outgrowth and the moving forward of redemptive history. Thus, for a Jew to embrace Christ and Christianity is not to abandon his Judaism. It is to embrace his Jewish culture. It's to become more Jewish. Christ is the Messiah that was sent for their deliverance. This has some very important implications for the Lord's Supper. Number one, that they were to celebrate the Passover annually was to remind them of God's deliverance. That's why God wanted them to do that. Every year on the first month of the Jewish year, they were to celebrate the Passover as a way of reminding them of what God had done for them. Very likely, this is the reason the New Testament church did it every Sunday. 
because that was the day of their deliverance. Christ rose from the dead. So every Sunday they celebrated the Lord's Supper as a way of reminding themselves of what Christ has done for us, that he delivered us. And that is why we as a church take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Not only because that is the pattern we see in the Bible, because we need to be reminded every Sunday that no matter how bad you blow it, no matter how sinful you are throughout the week, understand if you have faith in Christ, God's grace is greater still. I don't know about you, but I need that every Sunday. I look forward to the Lord's Supper every Sunday for that reason. But secondly... That the Old Testament people of God were required to eat the entire Passover lamb with unleavened bread and drink the wine all serves to remind them and us in the Lord's Supper that we are to fully consume Christ and drink his blood. I think that's what Jesus' point was in John chapter 6 where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus uses the Passover meal to institute the Lord's Supper, the meal where they were commanded to eat all of the Passover lamb. Don't leave any of it until the next day. The whole idea is that the Lord's Supper is supposed to remind us that throughout our lives, throughout the week, we are to be feeding on Christ constantly, daily, taking him into our lives into our heart, into our mind, through prayer, through fellowship, and through his word. Is not Jesus the word of God? Did not Jesus say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? My friends, Christ is the preeminence of God's word to us, and we are to feed on Christ every day, all of him. Take him all in. Thirdly, that the Passover meal is so closely connected to the covenant of law at Mount Sinai, which was to be read entirely every seven years, as an act of covenant renewal. Remember that when we looked at the covenant of law? God commands it. Every seven years, you are to read all of the law to the people of Israel. Men, women, children are all to gather in Jerusalem. You are to read the law to them. That's not just the Ten Commandments, my friends. It is all the law. Minimally, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would have been a long worship service. But they were to do so as an act of covenant renewal. It was a way of reminding them, we remember the covenant. We remember that we are in covenant relationship with you. We remember that we are to live in covenant fidelity to you, our Lord and God. 
My friends, the Lord's Supper does the same. When we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, that is what we are supposed to be doing. Taking the Lord's Supper is an act of covenant renewal for God's people. It is the way of all of us saying we remember the covenant, God. We remember that you have brought us into covenant relationship with you through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And we remember that we are to live in covenant fidelity to you, our God, our Savior, and our King. Paul then goes on in verse 24 of our text. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What did Jesus mean by these words? This is my body. Lots of debate on that over the centuries. There's still no consensus on it. The church, a little bit of a history background, the church, since the time of the, uh, the ninth century, uh, held to the view that, uh, and when I say the church, I do mean the church of Rome, the Roman Catholic church. That was the true church in the ninth century. There was only one church. The word Catholic, by the way, simply means universal. This was the church of Augustine. This was the church of uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian. And since the ninth century, the church adopted the view, trying to stay faithful to Scripture, that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he must have meant this literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And then in light of John chapter 6, where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no eternal life, the church came to believe that in the taking of the sacrament, that in this rite, the bread and the wine literally become the physical body of Christ, the actual blood of Christ, the flesh and the blood of Christ, and we are literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This came to be known as transubstantiation. As the word implies, trans to change, substance, the substance of the articles are changed, they are transformed. And of course, many... The Catholic Church still holds to this view. Many would say, well, it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine. And they would argue that it may taste like bread and it may taste like wine, but that's only because your senses fail to realize what it actually is. And that in the partaking of the sacrament, we are infused with the righteousness of Christ. We earn righteousness through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, thereby becoming inherently righteous. That was the view held by the church until the 16th century, until, as Pope Leo would say, a drunk monk came along and stirred up the pot. Martin Luther, being an Augustinian monk and studying Augustine, gravitated more toward the view of Augustine on the Lord's Supper. And that view was that the bread and wine are not literally transformed, although we are actually eating Christ, because Jesus said in John chapter 6 that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. So Christ is in the elements. We are actually eating Christ, but we do not receive any righteousness through the sacraments, as Luther rightly argued. We are credited with Christ's righteousness by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
But nonetheless, Luther argued along with Augustine that somehow Christ must be in the elements and we are feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. But the elements are not changed. They are still bread and they are still wine. This view came to be known as consubstantiation, that is Christ is with the elements and in the elements. In fact, Luther said this regarding the Lord's Supper because he struggled with really comprehending this. He said, quote, for my part, if I cannot fathom how the bread is the body of Christ, yet I will take my reason captive to the obedience of Christ and clinging simply to his words, firmly believe not only that the body of Christ is in the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ, close quote. Then along comes a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther, leading a reformation of his own in Switzerland. Zwingli argued for what's called the symbolic view. And he said, no, look, we're not actually eating Christ. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, Luther, you yourself have argued that we're justified by faith alone. So why the need to eat Christ? We don't need to eat Christ. We're not eating Christ. When Jesus said, this is my body, it was metaphorical language, just like Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is not saying I'm an actual vine. We know that. So it's symbolic. It's simply a picture and a reminder of what Christ has done for us. The biggest problem with Zwingli's argument is that he did not adequately take into account the strong warning that Paul will give at the end of 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at that in a moment. That if it's purely symbolic, why the strong warning against those who partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? There is no such strong warning with baptism. Why? Because baptism is purely symbolic. So if an unbeliever is inadvertently baptized, there's no judgment upon him or the one who does the baptizing. But there is a strong warning against unbelievers partaking of the Lord's Supper. So then John Calvin comes along. He tries to find a middle road between Luther and Zwingli. And Calvin argues on the one hand that Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. It is clear language. It is clearly not metaphorical language. So it must be the body and blood of Christ in some way. But on the other hand, he said to Luther, not personally, but he says to Luther, Christ is not omnipresent. The second person of the Godhead is seated in bodily form at the right hand of God the Father. So he cannot be in the elements or physically with the elements in any way. Nonetheless, Calvin argued that Christ is omnipresent by means of the Holy Spirit. That is how Christ can be in us, right? That's what Paul says. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How is Christ in us if Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father by means of the Holy Spirit because it is his spirit? Thus, in a spiritual sense, and yet in a real sense, Christ is in the elements. And we are, in fact, eating Christ, and we are drinking Christ, though not in a physical way, in any way, shape, or form. Hence the strong warning in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is the view that has come to be known as the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. It's a view that we hold to in this church, and it is a view that I ascribe to. I think Calvin was right in his understanding of the Lord's Supper. Just because 
Christ is present in the elements in a spiritual sense does not make it any less real. The Holy Spirit is spirit, and we can't see him, but he is real. We can't see demons, but they are real. Thus, Christ is present in and with the elements in a spiritual sense, yet in a very real sense, we are feeding on Christ. For this reason, it is only for believers. Notice Paul writes, Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. This is my body which is for you, believers, not for them out there. He's talking to the disciples. This is my body which is for you. Paul will use that kind of language in chapter 10. Again, I want to take you back to chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Those who take it are saying, we have participated in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Those who participate in the Lord's Supper are saying to each other and to God, we have participated in the body and blood of Christ by faith. It's for this reason that Paul gives such a strong warning in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That can only happen if we are handling, in some sense, the body and blood of Christ. And what does he mean in an unworthy manner? Clearly, for unbelievers to partake of the Lord's Supper. But he also means for believers who are living in unrepentant and unconfessed sin. If there is some deep-seated sin in your life that you know, and you know who you are, you know you're struggling with, if there is animosity in your heart between you and someone else, your spouse, your children, someone within the church, someone within your community, someone within your neighborhood or within your family, you dare not take the Lord's Supper until that has been dealt with. Because listen to what Paul says. Let a person examine himself, look into his heart, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some have even I believe this is probably part of the reason, one of the many reasons, obviously foreordination would be one, but this is one of the reasons Judas went out and hung himself. He was there when he took the Lord's Supper with Christ, all the while knowing, I'm going to betray you. He took the Lord's Supper and drank God's judgment on himself. Understand that if you are an unbeliever, pretending to be a Christian, or if you are living in unrepentant or unconfessed sin, you are playing with fire if you take the Lord's Supper. And you know that you're not living as you ought to be living.
Verse 25, Paul goes on to say, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the first sentence, Christ establishes the Lord's Supper as the sign and seal of the new covenant. Right? That's what he says. This is my body, or verse 25, uh, in the same way, he also took the cup after this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The disciples would have heard the words of Jeremiah in his words. The new covenant. Understand that the Jewish people were just as familiar with Jeremiah 31 as we were, as we are, if not better. They knew what that meant. They looked forward to that day, a day in which God would write his laws upon their hearts and we would all as Jewish people want to live for God and it would come naturally. A day in which we would no longer have to say to our fellow brothers and sisters, stop worshiping Baal. We'll all want to worship God. A day in which God would remember our sins no more. Sadly, most Jews never experienced that because they rejected the Messiah. They chose instead to remain under the law, under legalism, and to continue engaging in temple worship and temple sacrifices. And I am convinced that it is for that reason that God destroys the temple in A.D. 70, never to be rebuilt again because it was simply a shadow of the greater reality why bring back the shadow when the greater reality is here? Second half of verse 25. He says, do this as, an often, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. From these words, we understand that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper regularly. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Unlike baptism, we're not to do this once. We are to do it often. We are to do it regularly. The question is, how often? Well, the New Testament church took it every Sunday. So it is for that reason that we partake of it every Sunday. Yes, there is no command. But I think there is great wisdom in following the example and the pattern set for us by the New Testament church. Paul then adds an additional reason as to why we should take the Lord's Supper regular. Look at verse 26. He says, for, right, explanatory. So here's the reason. Here's why we should take it regularly. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what? We do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. It's a proclamation. It is a proclamation concerning what? We are proclaiming the Lord's death, the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a visible proclamation of the gospel to the saints. And we all need to hear the gospel every Sunday. In this way, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Because it is a means of grace as it is a visible proclamation of the gospel 
just as the preaching of the word is an audible presentation of the gospel, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a visible proclamation of the gospel. It is a reminder to us of God's saving grace and mercy. And it is a sign and a seal of the new covenant. Thus, only it is only open to those. It is only open to those who are inside the new covenant community. It is only open to those who are inside the invisible church of God by means of faith in Christ. If that describes you, then you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But if that does not describe you, if you're not truly a follower of Christ, living in obedience to Christ, which, by the way, church membership is something that all Christians are to be obedient to. It's something that I believe is required of Christians through Scripture. Now, we allow non-members to partake of the Lord's Supper, but membership is something that every believer should pursue in an organized local body of believers. If you're not living your life in a way that is in obedience to the Word of God, then I implore you, don't take the Lord's Supper. Don't make a mockery of God. Because, beloved, God will not be mocked. If you are a believer living in some hidden, unrepentant sin in your life, again, you are risking your life by partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is a serious matter. But understand that the Lord's Supper is open to all believers, all those who have placed faith in Christ, and it serves as a reminder to us of God's deliverance for us through the blood of the Lamb. It is a way in which we say to God, we remember the covenant and we are renewing this covenant with you. We remember that we are to live in covenant fidelity to you. So again, if you are a believer, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Parents are encouraged to please monitor your child. If your child is not in the faith, please do not allow them to partake of the sacrament. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that was given to your people through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray that it, by the Holy Spirit it would have its desired effect as we feed on Christ and as we drink his blood. We pray that we would be strengthened in our faith. And we pray, Lord God, that through the Lord's Supper, we would be reminded that today and every day we ought to be feeding on Christ. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.